All right, as you grab a seat, you can turn to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 18 this morning uh, as we keep walking through the book of Matthew. We got a little bit of a a little bit of a ring. Am I, too, am, I am I good? If it squeaks, you'll know I'm too much. All right, Matthew chapter two, verses thirteen through eighteen. Uh, so far in Matthew, as we've been walking through, uh, in chapter one we saw. Uh, the royal bloodline of David as it tracks down to Jesus. Uh, and then we saw not just that, that Jesus was going to be uh, the one who, who fulfills the promises to Abraham and to David uh, through, the, uh, through the bloodline, but then at the second half of chapter 1, uh, we saw the angelic announcement to Joseph of how uh, it was even possible for Mary to be with a child as, as she had conceived by the Holy Spirit, showing us that this is not just an ordinary uh, king that is going to come and to reestablish the throne of David in Jesus, um, but rather that he is, in fact, God in the flesh coming to dwell with his people to establish not just a, a temporary physical kingdom, but as we'll see throughout Matthew's gospel, he's coming to usher in an, an eternal spiritual kingdom of God. Uh, and last week in Matthew chapter 2, uh, what we saw was uh, something that was familiar to us maybe from the Christmas uh, story from year to year, which was the wise men coming to visit um, Jesus in Bethlehem, coming from a far way off after they had seen his star rise, and they came to worship him. Uh, and, and one of the things that we saw that, that, that maybe scratched the surface of what we already know that is coming this week and next um, is that when the wise men showed up in Jerusalem, it piqued the interest of Herod the king and those in Jerusalem when they started to hear that there's a king who's been born of the Jews in Bethlehem. And so Herod had sent the wise men, directed them towards Bethlehem when they had been searching out where this new king had been born. He, he gathered all of the chief priests and scribes, and he, and he said, where, tell, like, when is it, where is it that the Christ is to be born? Where is this anointed one of God, appointed by God to reign? Where is he supposed to be born? And the chief priests and the scribes, they pointed him right to the word, uh, and they, they showed him that it was going to be in Bethlehem. And so Herod sent the wise men ahead of him to Bethlehem, telling them, go find the king, worship him, and when you find him, then come back and let me know so that I can go and worship him also. Uh, and that is going to come into bear here in verses 13 through 18 as we continue in Matthew chapter 2 today. Uh, where we closed last week is that the wise men were directed to go home in a different way, right? They just, uh, not, they just were, were told not to go back to Herod. Now, if this is our first time ever going through the gospel of Matthew, we go, that's, that's kind of curious. Um, and if this is the first time that you've ever walked through the gospel of Matthew, uh, some of what we will see today is, is the very uh, opposite of what we would want to hear around Christmas time and around a Christmas message. Uh, when we see what Herod does in response to the wise men not returning to tell him where to go. So Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. It says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. 
For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So in verse 13, as it starts off, when they had departed, the they being the wise men, they departed, and they again, just recapping, they went a different way home, um, had gotten a dream telling them not to go back the same way. Now what's interesting is then right after that, the, the, the wise men have been warned, go home a different route. Now Joseph gets another angelic visit in another dream telling him, get up and run away. What's interesting in Matthew, this is already, like we're not very far into Matthew, and yet this is the third time, I'm going to argue, it's the third time an angel has appeared in Matthew in two short chapters. Uh, and I'm assuming it's the third because I'm assuming that the way that the wise men were warned in their dream not to go the same way was also kind of an angelic visit. Uh, but in, in either way, even if it's not an angelic visit, the Lord made obvious to them they're to go home a different way. But what we see in this, so, so if we put this together with Matthew and then you, you draw this out and combine it with Luke's gospel, you cannot escape the fact that, that God the Father is intimately involved in the details of revealing Jesus the Son. So in Matthew, you have the angelic visits telling Joseph, first of all, this is exactly how Mary has come to be with child. Then you have him, uh, the, the Lord, warning the, the wise men to go home a different way. Now you have an angel telling Joseph to run away to Egypt. If you go into Luke chapter 1, the first chapter of Luke is hinging on Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, who is ministering to the Lord in the temple, and an angel appears to him and lays out how he is going to have a special child who is John the Baptist. Then you get an angel appearing to Mary telling her that she is going to conceive by the Holy Spirit and have a son who will be uh, who will save the world. Then you have an angelic host appearing to the shepherds in the field, telling them that a Savior has been born and to run to Bethlehem to go see him. If you put all of this together, you stand back and you go, you can't possibly, if if the Bible is relaying what actually took place, we see that God is making it painfully obvious to those involved, that this is not some ordinary child who later on obtains superhero-like status when people are going, oh, we should probably make a myth about this guy now. Instead, what you see is from the very beginning, the groundwork is laid and we are seeing the overwhelming activity of God in making what was happening with the birth of Jesus clear to those who were around him. 
Right? So, so there's no way that Joseph and Mary could walk away from, from angels coming and saying, hey, first of all, Mary, you're going to conceive and have a son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph hearing a message, uh, your wife is, or your soon-to-be wife, your fiance, the one you're engaged to, the one you're betrothed to, is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Neither of them could walk away from Bethlehem and go, whose kid is this? How did this happen? Nor could, uh, and then you take even the, the wise men showing up and, and, and how in the world do they put it all together that a new king has been born and that they ought to go and worship him. And yet God is drawing people, shepherds, wise men, all of these people, Anna and, and uh, Simeon in the book of Luke, drawing them to a place of worship from the very beginning. And what we're seeing is that God is overwhelming, God the Father, overwhelmingly active in revealing Jesus the Son as he takes on flesh. And in this case, in, in, in the case of Matthew chapter 2, the angel's message is pretty, simil- uh, pretty, pretty easy. It's a, a warning to flee with the child and his mother and go to Egypt to a specific place and stay there until God tells them to return. And the rationale for why is at the second half of verse 13, because, or for, Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Which is directly in contrast to what Herod told the wise men in verse 8, when he said, when he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, go and search diligently for the child. When you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. All of a sudden you go, that's not really about worship at all. And we're going to circle back to to why Herod wants to destroy him in just a moment. But what you see in verse 14 is, as soon as Joseph got the message from the Lord, it says, he rose and took the child and his mother by night, very possibly that night. Immediate obedience. Quick obedience. And then it fills it out, and he says, and he remained there until the death of Herod. And so we're going to have this, we get the full picture, and then in verses 16 through 18, we kind of snap back into the picture of, of what is happening with Herod. But all of this, Jesus going, being taken by Joseph along with his mother to Egypt, is all to fulfill another prophecy of the Old Testament in Hosea, where it says, out of Egypt I called my son. Which in, in Hosea, God is speaking to the people of Israel, reminding them of their history, how all the way back he had delivered them and brought them out by his mighty hand and brought them out of Egypt into the land of promise. And now he's saying in the same way, he's going to take his son of promise and bring him out of Egypt and at some point bring him back in to the place of God's uh, people, uh, to the place where he will minister, to the place where he will be revealed fully, to the place where he will inaugurate the kingdom, to the place where he will heal, to the place where he will preach, to the place where he will be ultimately crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. But that's all future at this point. All Joseph knows at this point is, take your family and run away for an indefinite amount of time. Now, again, I would take you into Joseph's mindset a little bit. Can you just imagine as a young father, first of all, you're, you're still kind of wrapping your head around the news that your wife had a child by the power of the Holy Spirit. And now, an angel comes back another time and tells you, okay, you got to get up and run away and go to a different place, to a place that, that God had delivered his people out of, to a place where they had often been commanded not to go to. 
Many times in the Old Testament, Egypt is not the place where the people of Israel are to go for refuge. It's the place that they're not to go to run to in order to find uh, strength in numbers or military alliances. And here Joseph is told, go quickly, take the child. And, and notice this, the emphasis is on the child first and then his mother. And it doesn't say take the child and your wife. He says take the child and his mother and go to Egypt and remain until I tell you. Because Herod has ill intent. Then, in verse 16, Herod, this is also tied to verse 13, when the wise men had departed, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. So you remember that Bethlehem and Jerusalem are about five miles apart from each other. So you can imagine that Herod has in his mind, they're going to run up to Bethlehem today, maybe spend the day or the next day worshiping this new king, and then they're going to come back and tell me. So it doesn't tell us how long it takes Herod to realize that they're not coming back. But as soon as he realizes they're not coming back, he becomes furious and, and de determines to wipe out all of the young males two years and younger from Bethlehem. And before we touch on that, I just want to give you a little bit of a, a character sketch of Herod that might help you understand where this fits in within the whole. Hey, Miley, can you hold on to your worm? Fish? Fishy worm? Yeah. <laughs> so Herod, if you remember, we've talked about Herod a little bit, that Herod was established by Rome to be king over uh, Israel and the area that we would now call Palestine, but it was Israel and, and renamed Palestine by the Romans. He was not fully Jewish. He was Idumean, again, so he was from the offspring or from the line of Esau. Uh, and at, at a certain point, the people uh, the, of Edom were kind of given a, a, an ultimatum. They could either, like, they either had to profess uh, Judaism or be deported. And so a lot of the, even Herod expressing faith as a, through his mom as a, a Jewish person was probably a little bit less than sincere. And then we go, when we look at what is relayed to us in history about Herod, we go, it's very clearly insincere faith. Um, Herod is, uh, for lack of better words, he's, he's a super paranoid leader. Uh, constantly concerned that someone will usurp his authority. In fact, one of his sons previously had gotten him deposed, and, and Herod ran back to Rome and got reinstated. Uh, he's a guy who had his wife put to death, his father-in-law put to death, his brother-in-law put to death. He had two of his own sons put to death, thinking that they were going to try to wrestle control away from him for his kingdom. He, so he uh, uh, historically is, is credited with putting 46 members of the Sanhedrin, so Pharisees and Sadducees, to death because he feared their influence. He is a guy who will do anything to eliminate anybody who, who, who poses any threat to him. So it, when you start to put that together, it, it really goes, if, if a man is willing to kill his own children, what will he not do in order to maintain political control? If a man is willing to sacrifice everything up to his family, unknown children in a village five miles away mean nothing. Now, you and I would stand back and go, well, they obviously mean something. This is horrible. And I would absolutely agree with you. This is a horrible moment when Herod goes into Bethlehem or sends people into Bethlehem to kill the young boys. 
It was actually even uh, Caesar Augustus supposedly or is attributed with saying it is better to be Herod's pig than his son because at least pigs were safe because Jews didn't eat them. He's a guy who is, who is attributed with a lust for power and a desire to maintain it no matter what. Which when you think about this, it becomes even more concerning when Herod knew the significance of a child who was born and when wise men came from the east looking for him, what was the question he asked the chief priests and the scribes? Not where is the king supposed to be born. He said, where is the Christ to be born? What makes it even more crazy about Herod is Herod understood this child, is this king, is also the anointed one of God appointed to deliver his people. And Herod goes, I don't care. That's not my plan. That's not my agenda. On the back end of this, we'll ask the question, but is Herod the only person in all of history opposed to Jesus in this way? No. How many people will say, this is, what, this is the clear message of who Jesus is and why he's come? And how many people will say, not on my watch. That's not my agenda. That Jesus has no right to tell me what to do. That Jesus is owed none of my allegiance because I have my own kingdom I'm building here. So, Beth, uh, so, so Herod sends people to Bethlehem, and they kill all of the male children, two years and under, because Herod had met with, in verse 7, he had met with the wise men and determined, when did you see the star? What's our time frame? What's our threat? Two years and under. And seeing who Herod is, it's not probably... Uh, too big of a stretch to go, Herod probably stretched the limit a little bit. Let's just be safe. In Bethlehem, it's probably 20 to 40 children of that age, based off of the size, based off of the time. But what he is doing is not just political, but it is outright against the Lord and his plan. And this is what... This is what the angel was sparing Jesus from. Now, a couple of questions before we dive into the fulfillment that is seen in Jeremiah chapter 31. One of the questions that might rise out of this passage is, well, didn't Jesus come to die? So why is he spared? Now, this, this seems like the easiest way. Herod gets angry, kills Jesus, Jesus dies, people are forgiven, voila. Jesus did, in fact, come to die, but not this way and not this death. Jesus didn't come to die a death among the innocent. He came to die on a sinner's cross, a sinner's death, even though he was innocent. Jesus came to die in such a way that he would fulfill all of the Old Testament requirements to take away your sin and mine. Not just to die a death that represents God loves you so much he would send his son for you. But to functionally pay for your sin and my sin. That's only done on the cross at Calvary. So while God the Father spares Jesus this death, He is reserving for Him a death yet to come that we're going to celebrate on Easter. So we can't celebrate Christmas without an eye towards Jesus is born in order to, not just to rule and to reign, but before that, to die for you and for me. 
He came to functionally pay for your sin and my sin. And the only way that he could do that is through his death, burial, and resurrection. But it is not on Herod's schedule. The Lord has appointed for him a time. That's why you can read through the book of John and and other times people try to rise against Jesus and yet it says his time had not yet come. His time hadn't come yet. He, he even when, when Mary goes to him at the, first, uh, at the wedding feast at Canaan, she asks him to do a miracle. One of the things he says, my, my time's not yet. He still performs the miracle, but he's, he's, he's relaying something, that there is a time appointed by the Father for this, and he is, he is bound and determined to fulfill that. But Herod's intentions don't fulfill it. Then we might have a beef might take offense, and and to be honest with you this morning, I don't have a great answer for you other than that God allowed it. You might say, well, if if God could send an angel to spare Joseph and Mary and Jesus, could he not have spared the others? And the obvious answer to that is, well, he could have. And so your, your, your next question will be, well, why didn't he? And my answer to you would be, I don't fully know. However, What I do know is that God, and what we're going to look at in Jeremiah's fulfillment in chapter 31 of Jeremiah, paints a picture of a similar situation with a huge picture of hope. What will be interesting is that next week when we look at the return of Jesus to Israel, he doesn't return to Bethlehem, he returns to an obscure place in Nazareth that other people will ridicule and say, does anything good come from that place? Functionally, Herod believes he has killed the threat. What is also interesting of that, though, is anybody in Jerusalem who would have thought that the Christ was born in Bethlehem, guess what happens in this event? Hope is snuffed out. If there was a king and he was born in this time frame, hope is gone. If you look at this passage from the the broader perspective, the the one who is to sit on David's throne at the end of our passage this morning does not even, like, he doesn't even live within the boundaries of where David was promised to reign. Not only do people think that hope is killed, but hope is functionally removed out of Israel and it is in Egypt until sometime. It looks really, really bleak. So, for all of the promise that is in Matthew 1 through 2, verse 12, Verses 13 through 18 paint a different side of this that renders us going, how in the world is God going to be able to see this thing through if everyone is going to be violently opposed to this kid? And one of the things that sometimes we lose maybe um, in this season, we call it an Advent season, is that the, the Advent is all about the waiting. The waiting with hope. In Jeremiah 31 and verse 15, which is quoted here in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 18, have you ever read this passage and say this was fulfilled and you go, man, that's a really, in a way it's almost an obscure fulfillment, but then it's also a really depressing fulfillment. Oh, this, this fulfills a scripture that people are wailing over their children and their children are no more. Wow, that's, that makes you feel good around Christmas, doesn't it? But the reality is, and don't miss this, that Jesus was born into a desperately broken and sinful world. You and I live in that same desperately broken and sinful world, and you and I would ask the same question that people at this point would be asking. Where then is the hope? Where then is 
the restoration? Where is salvation? Where is the way out of this? Because what I see on face value is weeping mothers who refuse to be comforted because their children are no more. Maybe what you can see this morning is nothing but heartache and heartbreak. So where then is the hope for you in this son who was born to save? In Jeremiah chapter 31, I would, I would love to just spend uh, a whole bunch more time diving into the whole chapter. But what is interesting, I'll turn your attention to it, is the heading over Jeremiah 31 in your Bible might say something like, the Lord will turn mourning to joy. The Lord will comfort the brokenhearted. In Jeremiah 31, 15, it, it, couched in that is, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they're no more direct tied to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 18. The context here in Jeremiah is the people of Israel have just been sent into captivity. And there are women weeping over their children who have been carried from Israel, the place of promise, and they've been carried away thinking they will never see them again. A hopeless picture. And yet all around that and, and directly following that is an incredible message of hope for God's people. So it starts off with this, this hopeless picture, and then in verse 16 it p- picks up, Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God." For after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, and I was confounded, because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel, return to these your cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. What you have here is this picture that God is promising. I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to bring back those who have gone into captivity. And here's an incredible picture. Jesus has just gone to the place that is identified more than any other place in the Old Testament with captivity of God's people. And even though he is far off and he is in Egypt for an indefinite amount of time, there is this correlation, this parallel with God bringing his people out of exile back to himself. And then if you drop down in in Jeremiah 31, down to verses 31 through 34, and again, I'd encourage you to spend a little bit more time in all of Jeremiah 31. We're just condensing it a little bit. But it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. In this incredible time of darkness and weeping and hopelessness, the Lord is speaking over his people, hold on, hope is coming. I'm going to write a new word on their heart. I'm going to take the word of the law and instead I'm going to write it on their hearts. I will forgive their sin and remember it no more. There will be joy brought from the morning. If we could sum up Matthew chapter 2 and, and Jeremiah 31 in, in a very simple phrase, even though all seems lost, the king will return to save his people. There will be a point in the future in Matthew, and we're going to see it next week in, 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 in a small way. We're going to see it in Matthew 3 in a larger way, that the king is coming. In, in this period in Israel's history, all seems lost. Herod is on the rampage, and it seems like no one can stand against him. The king is coming, and he will save his people. You and I on this side of, of the cross of salvation, we're wading through a lot of things. There, there's a lot of things that are not the way that we would design them to be. There's a lot of things that are not the way we would have them to be. And yet the promise throughout all of Scripture is what? The king is coming, and he will save his people. That salvation is found already in, through faith in Christ, and yet we recognize that it's not the fullness of salvation that we long for that we will see when Jesus calls, him to, calls us to himself finally. The king is coming, and he'll save his people. It may seem dark. It may seem hopeless. It may seem like there is no way out, and yet God is faithful to his promises. The king is coming, and he will save his people. Fix your eyes on him. Wait on him. He will not disappoint, even though there may be mourning, there may be weeping, there may be grieving, and yet the king is coming, and he will save his people.